Welcome to Farmarama, where we share the voices of small-scale farmers from around the world. This month, we start in Wales, where we learn how planning legislation is opening doors for people wanting to produce and live sustainably. Then we head to the US to hear how one farm is taking a philosophical approach to sharing the practice of farming and connecting to the land. And finally, back on British soil to hear from a long-time soil scientist about organic matter. It's really good to have you back with us this month, Abby. As some listeners will already know, your family's got a farm in Chile, which was really unfortunately caught in the horrific fires at the, end, at the beginning of last year. Um, and you've been there this year. So how was the experience for you of, going, of being back there for the first time? Yeah, it was heartbreaking and nourishing all in one. I guess one of the hardest bits was we used the app I created, Sector Mentor, to go out and categorize the condition of every tree. Um, and some mornings when I went out, it was just incredibly disheartening and depressing, really, marking tree after tree that was just a black trunk with no life. And so in the end, it became apparent we lost about half of our 8,000 olive trees to the fire. So yeah, I guess it's incredibly sad to see the loss of life for so many trees. Um, and plus, it's eight years of work all gone. <laughs> It seems crazy to wait another eight years for new olive trees to grow again. Nature can't be sped up, and plus the fires will return, almost certainly, so we can't just do the same thing again. I mean, that's a massive change. What is what is the different approach, and is that approach going to bring, uh, bring things to the farm sooner than, like, within the next year or two years? Yeah, exactly. So we are going for a much more varied approach you might say um, my sister and I worked together and we put um, a five-year plan together uh, with the help of a farming advisor Niels Corfield and it's all primarily or initially focused on building soil health and a fire-friendly farm we're starting with ensuring that more moisture is kept in the soils and that's done by uh, mob grazing sheep between the olives that do remain and then we're going to sow some annual crops in between some of the rows. And then that will mean that actually later this year in Chile, we will have a crop of something that we can hopefully sell to our neighbor who makes beer. Uh, we're planting succulents on the border with the forests because that creates a fire break. Um, and best of all, my favorite thing is that we created a natural pool. So that's 40,000 liters of water ready to be pumped out at any time to fire, fight a fire. We use the pool all the time, and, and we, it makes sense for us to keep it working and running. So you mean this is a swimming pool for swimming in, or it's a pool for drawing water off freezing in the farm? It's a swimming pool, as well as... I mean, you could use it for whatever you wanted, but yes, we swim in it. <laughs> oh, that is great. Yes, it is great. <laughs> well, I think it's also nice to make swimming a part of your daily farming life. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, and so that was part of the nourishing aspect of being there was like, there is something about bringing an aspect to the farm that is about relaxation or enjoyment, because um, otherwise you can get drawn into just working all the time, because there's always something more to do on the farm. 
it's it's fantastic that you've been that you've that you've you put this work in. I think I don't know. I'm I'm fully inspired by your positive attitude to being able to even think about you know the next thing to do after such a devastating event. One thing that's helpful is because we make wine, um, we actually have some produce to sell. You know, from years before, because it was fermenting in tanks when the fire came. And I know you weren't meaning to do this, Abby, but maybe you could uh, let people know where they could get get hold of some of this natural wine if they wanted to try it. Sure. Yeah. So you can you can if you want to try natural wine and taste taste uh, the farm in Chile, um, then you can go to our website, uh, vidacycle.com. That's like life cycle, Vida cycle. Jackie Banks and her partner Tom were successfully given planning permission to build a low-impact home in 2015 under the One Planet Development Policy. This Wales-only policy offers people a chance to create an ecological smallholding if they can demonstrate a commitment to various low-impact, environmentally responsible principles. And they also have to prove that they can earn enough to support the household from what they call a land-based livelihood. Jackie is on the One Planet Council, a voluntary group set up to promote the policy. Phil Moore went to meet Jackie at her small holding, Penkedney in Pembrokeshire, where she explains why she feels this policy can be a catalyst for ecological farming and regenerative agriculture. Greetings from Wales. Old lands and lost lanes, Wales' varied topography is written in its place names, Harlech, Aberystwyth, Coedy Bryn, Welsh, the oldest British language still in use. Wales is also home to innovation when it comes to farming and agriculture. The Welsh Assembly's forward-thinking One Planet Development Policy enables an affordable and sustainable way for people to live and work on the land, bringing social, economic and environmental benefits to rural areas. Adopted by the Welsh Government in 2011 as part of its One Wales, One Planet scheme, I'm off to speak to Jackie of Penkedney, a One Planet development, to find out more. Hello, I'm Jackie, and me and my boyfriend have a farm in Pembrokeshire, and I'm a member of the One Planet Council. Our farm is a 10-acre site in North Pembrokeshire. We have started the farm from scratch so it was just bare pasture when we bought the land uh, about five years ago. We have put access tracks in, we've developed an on-site spring, Uh, it's a south-facing slope so it's a really nice spot Um, and it's really nice to work down there most of the time apart from when it's raining. Uh, We've planted two acres of walnuts since we've been there and uh, we're setting the site up as a tree nursery predominantly so we've planted a lot of parent stock for trees that will be part of that nursery. So we planted lots of berry-bearing trees like sea buckthorn and aronia, lots of interesting forest garden type plants um, that we'll, we will sell to people interested in that sort of thing. Uh, also timber trees and 
pretty much anything that's good for either humans or wildlife is the sort of thing we're interested in. Um, we ha- are also building a house on the site. So we've put the foundations in for that house. Uh, we've started putting the electric and things like that, all the groundwork type stuff. So our farm is a one planet development, which is a planning policy that's specific to Wales. Um, it's a planning policy that allows you to build on agricultural land as long as you're setting up a business on that land. Um, You also have to meet really strict ecological criteria um, and several sets of targets which include growing a portion of your own food, uh, growing your own fuel for firewood for heating, providing your own electric, dealing with your own waste through a reed bed or something similar along those lines Um, and you also have to have a low ecological footprint. Um, so you have to monitor what you spend your money on, what you buy, and you have to meet targets in regards to that as well. So it's by no means uh, an open door policy to building in the open countryside in Wales. You really have to be um, of a certain mindset and able to meet those criteria and to run a productive business that's ecologically friendly Um and that fits in also with the community. There's a big community aspect to it in terms of it being a sense, sensitive rural community. So you need to be able to prove that you can fit in, your business fits in with the kind of general feel of the place as well. Who awards the One Planet development? So OPD planning permission is, um, you. in order to gain OPD planning permission, you have to put together a quite detailed planning application which includes a management plan that goes into your local council um, and it's assessed at county level or if the county's not able to deal with it for whatever reason it can sometimes go to government level as well because it is a Welsh government policy. There's about 20 One Planet developments in Wales that have gained permission already and they have a variety of businesses including uh, juices from apples, um, jewellery making, there's a market garden, Uh, some people are growing herbs to sell for medicinal use. There's also examples of people growing willow for for craft, Uh, it's quite a good market in that and Wales is a really good place to be growing that sort of thing. And then there's about 20 or so more that are in the pipeline, people who've bought land, they're putting together applications um, and we'd like to see a lot more of them. So tell us a bit about the One Planet Council, um, what the One Planet Council is, what they do, and maybe your role in it as well. So I'm part of the One Planet Council, and we are an organisation that try to sort of bridge the gap between local councils and applicants for One Planet Developments. So we do a lot of education for people who are trying to put an application together. Uh, we run workshops so that they can... Um, get the details of what they really want to do as their business and the sort of facts and figures that they need for that detailed management plan together. So we support applicants in that way. And we also run training courses for county councils, so for councillors and planning committees, to try and help them to understand the policy and understand what it actually means and how to assess applications. Um, We also just are spreading the word about One Planet development and making sure that people know that it's an option. Why would anyone choose to do an OPD and maybe who's able to do an OPD, a One Planet development? One Planet development really offers uh, an opportunity for human scale land-based businesses. So we 
like people who are doing one planet developments can set up from quite small businesses and grow them slowly they don't have to have big startup capital they don't have to go straight in there with a really big business Um, and it also offers the opportunity for people to live on their land which means that running a business is much more viable or that type of rural business land-based business is is a possibility for people who it might not have been a possibility for if they were having to also pay a mortgage or rent a property um, which obviously it can cause practical. Okay, so tell us a bit about the um, yeah the community building up around the one planet development and the sort of things happening, the sort of people um, that are doing it, and and those kind of relationships and how it's going. There's a real buzz around OPD, uh, which is the sort of shorthand for one planet development. Um, it's really attracting people who have innovative ideas about farming and small businesses that are land-based there's lots of people who are getting together and actually talking about the possibilities that are presented by the policy we had a a one planet gathering um late last year and there were the room was just full of excitement about what people were doing and conversations about the details of their specific bit of land and how they all varied so there's a real a uh, sense of community building up around OPD and you know Tom and I chose to do One Planet Development because we wanted to be farmers and it gave us that opportunity to be on the land and I feel like everybody who's involved in it feels really privileged to have got um, a planning permission for something that they have really wanted for a long time and that's a great basis for all sorts of interesting things to come out of um, I feel like we are all helping each other, we're really supporting each other, we're talking a lot about the challenges that are presented through working on the land. You know, it can be really miserable. You can have days where it's raining and you've got to do something that's actually quite difficult and it's got to happen now. And knowing that there's a community of people who are doing the same sort of thing and have the same sort of aims and are excited by the same things as you is really a great support. The farm at The Duchess, a secret hotel located on 230 acres in New York State's Hudson River Valley, is now entering its second year of growing. There, Farm manager Zach Wolf and his team grow a range of vegetables and cover crops using biodynamic methods. But the farm also serves as a space for visitors to relax, to learn, and more generally to reflect on what a good life means to them. created is a experience for people to come and explore people that are coming from all over the country or the world and really giving them a landing spot to relax to connect uh, and to explore agriculture I've been farming in the Hudson Valley for the last 10 or 12 years now and I grew up farming in Northwest Connecticut about an hour from here I went to college in in New York City and have been making my way up the valley, I think closer to home, 
getting more and more comfortable with being close to home. And so for me, agriculture has been my own source of daily practice, of inspiration, of grounding, um, of healing at different times in my life. And this farm, for me, was a way to explore that personally, but also share that with other people. What I see in my work as an educator, as a consultant, and as a farmer, and just as a human being, is that there is a lot of grief in our culture that has not yet been processed. And I don't think it's going to be processed without spaces for people to feel safe. The land has been that space for me personally, and so this farm really is a very personal expression. And so when people come and we provide programming, for me the only impact is through intimacy, some sort of real connection. In that moment of connection, um, I find that all of the other details that we're trying to explore the details about the reality of agriculture in this country and worldwide, um, the reality of what nourishing food is and is not. You know, we're all overexposed, in my opinion, to information. And so it feels to me that we're in a moment of trying to allow the really pertinent, important information to rise to the top. And so how do you create spaces where people can, um, for themselves, explore what's worthwhile. There's maybe three or four themes that I like to talk about. I mean, the first, obviously, is soil, and just how soil, um, as we're learning, is, is the gateway towards health. So not only in terms of providing high quality food, but actually in terms of what it does to the human biome, in terms of inoculation and exposure. And then from there, there's another gateway conversation about science in general and reframing how we think about science and how we think about evolution and bringing in concepts of cooperation and synergy and really systems thinking and systems theory, which is a whole new framework of understanding the natural world and our place in it. From there, I like to go into actually the limitations of science and how I think that we almost have a theology of science at the moment where we look to science as such a place of authority that we lose our own personal um, empowerment and that we often sacrifice sort of our own development, I think, spiritually or intuitively because it's been taught out of us. It's, it's been taught out of us because it's no longer scientific. And so I really like to talk about, in my own experience as someone who studied science, how to, how to utilize science as a tool but not as a map to understand your life. I guess the fourth thread is really my own personal journey with farming and how the work itself is really the gift. You know, I don't subscribe to any particular religion or spiritual belief system, but what comes to me is just that numinous awe and reverence that being on land provides. You know, just sharing that with people and also sharing how, for me, you know, at different points in my life where I've been heartbroken or, you know, needing support, that the land has always been there. And that 
for other people, the land is there. An average weekend, would be, people would show up on a Friday night, have a meal, um, wake up, explore the property in some way, or do yoga, or meditate, or exercise, have brunch, and then usually after brunch, we do a talk, and then come out into the field for a tour. So at that point, you sort of grounded, you started to decompress, you've tasted the land, we've talked, we've conversed, and hopefully there's a bit of a curiosity built. And so the field becomes sort of this like anticipation for people. So then it's a walk around and, you know, sampling or activity or really whatever needs to go on. And I think the fun thing about it is because it's an intimate group, it's like it, it can go in a lot of different directions. A lot of my background has been in consulting, education, and then farmer training. So I'm very much aware of the challenges facing people that are either in agriculture or want to get into agriculture. For me, at the same time, if you don't activate your spirit in the work, if you don't have a reference point that provides you inspiration and motivation to do this work daily, then you burn out. And so it's actually integral to sustainability, to have people um, explore within themselves why they're doing this work and what really um, turns them on every day. All of these things, I think, are deeply important in sort of bringing the art back into the craft of farming, if you will. But then beyond that, in terms of, you know, the practical conversations that we're trying to have here, it's, you know, we talk about the issues surrounding health, you know, in this country, you know, the obesity epidemic, and at the same time, the hunger epidemic, you know, the amount of soil that we lose every year to create food, the contamination of our food supply with chemicals, the loss of soil fertility, loss of nutrition and food, the loss of farmers in America, you know, all of those things we talk about in a way that hopefully is non-dualistic. You know, it's not about trying to separate conventional farmers or organic farmers, small-scale farmers or large farmers. It's really about understanding place, understanding the appropriateness of scale, understanding the appropriateness of technologies, be they genetic or in terms of machinery, and really bringing it all back to soil. That's the foundation, I think, of bridging the gap between the conventional and the organic. If you're actually looking at the quality and the health of the soil, it's not going to mislead you. I love my fellow farmers. I grew up doing it, and farmers in the family, but it's taken me a long time to reconcile that the way I choose to do this work or the path that I've taken might not always be accepted by everyone in the community. And that's great. That's okay. <laughs> it's taken me a long time to get there because you, you want to feel like a member. But it's, it's very liberating at the same time. And I really believe in what we're doing, even though it's a less maybe conventional approach. And it could be maybe perceived as elitist or out of touch or something like that. But farming has, has gone from a craft to an art for me and sort of a way for me to explore different parts of myself. And I'm actually very proud of that now and proud of the capacity that this work has for other people in that way and want to share that with people. This connection with agriculture is so important for for everyone in some capacity, but for farmers 
having a way to not be ground to the point where you become a beast of the work, but you can come away at the end of the day and still feel inspired by the work. And so there's so many different parts of that equation in terms of, you know, the economics and the technologies and the capital and, you know, all, all of these different things. I'm, I'm very, very aware of that. But at the end of the day, I do feel like there's a broader philosophy that we need to continue to develop to make sure that we're engaging with the work in a way that's truly regenerative spiritually. I'm wondering how relevant you think this will be to everyday farmers across the world, hearing something like this. Um, is it somewhat removed from the sort of daily reality of farming to pay the bills? I mean, I definitely think that this is not about day-to-day -day farming that pays the bills. This is about sharing farming with a group of, or a collection of people who maybe on a day-to-day -day basis don't really interact with and understand the importance of farming. Do you think things like this allow everybody to learn from farming? And what is it about the farming that they're that they're learning from? Is it is it the very nature or the very aspect of just being close to the farming and being able to do it? You know, Zach is very clear that he sees farming as a practice um, and a very kind of personal journey and that that's what he is sharing with people. And from, I get that that's how he thinks some people or, you know, everyone can be drawn into farming from that perspective of like a very personal, emotional journey and and that you can explore that whilst working with or connecting with the land and you know part of that is growing food in my experience on farming myself i've definitely found it to be very emotionally rewarding going out and tending to the olive trees on a day-to-day -day basis although monotonous is somehow incredibly nourishing. This is something I did ask, I did probe Zach about a little, um, was, you know, are, is he missing some of the reality of farming? Some of the, you know, like thinking about the fires and stuff like that. Like, actually, that was incredibly traumatizing. Um, and I really felt like I had nowhere to turn, certainly couldn't turn to the land at that time. What's interesting for me is that they're using it as a tool to draw in people who may feel completely disconnected from farming, like especially, for example, the tech elite in the US, uh, people in Silicon Valley. Like my experience of many people there is that when I talk to them about farming, they have very radical views that seem so far removed from the realities of farming. So I think it's exciting to find ways to draw people in and you know it seems like at the duchess that they're doing a good job of that by sharing um an an experience there's something about just igniting that possibility in people about just how core farming is to all of our lives 
farming is interacting, being in conversation with soil, water, and air. That's why, um, to me, that's part of why it is so nourishing for the soul. It's because like those are our basic resources in the world. We can't live without them. No, nothing can live without them. You know, by just reconnecting people with the essence of that quality and that farming is at the core of that, I, I think that's a hugely important message. Something that's not, not easy to do unless you really bring people to the farm and then find a way to connect with their emotions and, you know, something that's real in their life. And that is something that I think you can do on an afternoon walk in a field, to an extent. Or hopefully by listening to a monthly podcast with reports from different farms throughout the world. Exactly, Joe. Spot on. <laughs> in January, we were at the Agricology Field Day, which had a theme of mixing it up, lays, livestock and arable. Dr. Lizzie Sagu, soil scientist at ADAS, caught up with Annie Landless to talk about soil health and soil organic matter for all different types of farms. So my name is Lizzie Sagu, I'm a soil scientist at ADAS based over near Cambridge. Um, I've been working at ADAS for 14 years now on all aspects of, sort of soil, soil health and crop nutrition, get involved with lots of different projects. I wanted to ask you specifically um, about soil organic matter. Um, so how does soil organic matter affect soil health and improving soil health? So we've been talking quite a bit about soil health today. There's a lot of interest in soil health. It's quite topical. I've said that farmers like to think their soil is healthy and they want to take steps to try and improve the soil health. Um, when we talk to farmers about soil health and agriculture, I would tend to say there's three things to think about. Um, firstly, try and maintain and increase your soil organic matter content. Um, secondly, try and make sure that you've got good soil structure. And thirdly, make sure you're not losing any of that soil, minimise soil erosion. But the three are linked because if you're able to increase your soil organic matter content, you make soil more resilient to those other threats. So improving soil organic matter improves your soil structure and it also increases resilience to erosion. Soil organic matter is almost key to soil health and there's a, a range of other associated benefits. So if you increase your soil organic matter content as well as improving soil structure, you'll increase um, the retention and turnover of nutrients. You'll also um, improve the soil's ability to withstand um, droughty conditions, which can be particularly important on lighter textured soil as well. So it's... Um, and, and actually, when, when we're talking to farmers about management practices to improve soil health a lot of these really relate back to practices that are looking to try and improve your soil organic matter content the next thing i wanted to ask you about um is what farmers should look for when they're looking at their soils so particularly with soil monitoring are there particular things to look for in soils yeah okay so that's a good question and um, we quite often get asked by farmers what should i be measuring in terms of looking at my soil quality or soil health um i would say two key things to measure um i think a measurement of your soil organic matter content is really useful um particularly if you're looking to change management practice um it's useful to have a baseline measure of what your soil organic matter content is so you can measure change over time You've got to remember that soil organic matter changes slowly over time, so don't expect 
expect to see immediate changes, but it, you know, it's useful to benchmark that at the start. And then secondly, soil physical structure. You know, make sure your soil is not compact. Um, the, and the best way of doing that is just by going out and digging a hole. Um, you can use methods such as visual evaluation of soil structure. If you put it into Google, you'll come up with a sort of a two-page document that gives some really useful guidelines. Basically, dig out a spit of soil and look at it and the way it falls apart in your hands. Um, what you're wanting to do is look at, um, you, you want a crumbly soil structure you look at the aggregates you don't want to be seeing aggregates that are angular and you want to see the soil breaking apart vertically not horizontally if you've got horizontal fissures that's implying compaction so i think getting out and digging a hole and looking at soil organic matter content are two really good things that farmers can do and are there any disadvantages or challenges i suppose would be better way to put it to soil organic matter um, I wouldn't say there's any disadvantages to increasing your soil organic matter content. Um, the challenge is how to achieve it. You know, if you want to increase your soil organic matter content, um, you need to do two things. One, you need to um, increase your input to organic matter, and then you need to reduce your losses. There's a range of ways you can increase your inputs. So applying organic manures is a really good way of increasing soil organic matter content, and then also increasing um, return of um, crop residues. So things like cover cropping, ploughing in your straw... Um, grass lays those sorts of things will all add organic matter and then in turn you want to make sure you're not losing that organic matter um, through and tillage will oxidize that so reducing tillage and also make sure you're not losing it um, the challenge for farmers i'm sure a lot of farmers out there want to increase their soil organic matter content the challenge is how they do that um, if you're in an hour rotation and you don't want to integrate grass you might then be looking for organic manures but then it's sourcing them so it, it it's, it's finding a, a, a way which fits um, your farm, your location and your system. This episode of Farmerama was produced by Abby Rose, that's me, Joe Barrett and Katie Revel. There's been additional reporting from Phil Moore in Wales and Annie Landless, who is also the force behind our social media channels. So we're about to say goodbye, but just before we go, we'll leave you with a word from Katie, who's got news of a special report which will be hitting the feed between now and the end of April, which is when the next monthly episode drops. Hi, this is a heads up to look out for a special short episode that we're going to release very soon. If you live in Scotland, or even if you don't, you might have heard that the Scottish Government will soon be introducing a Good Food Nation Bill. It's set to be a wide-ranging piece of legislation, touching on health, sustainable production, food poverty, food culture, and a lot more besides. It has the potential to be radical and world-leading, but there's a lot at stake. So Nourish, a food justice NGO, along with other members of the Scottish Food Coalition, are asking people to host kitchen table talks. These are chances to gather and share ideas about what Scotland's relationship with food is and could be. I'll be speaking with staff from Nourish about the talks and about what the Good Food Nation Bill could mean for Scotland and for elsewhere. So look out for that short. And if you'd like to host your own kitchen table talk, visit foodcoalition.scot. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you again soon. Toodaloo!